0: All right, turn to Psalm 132, and uh, if you have that in your Bible, it's in your bulletin, I think it'll be on the screen as well, and you're going to want to hang on to it and keep it with you as I refer back to it. This is the longest of the Psalms, the songs of ascent. Um, Don't let that make you nervous. We're going to be okay. But as you turn there, I was thinking this week as I was studying this psalm, I was thinking about my, and I think I may have said this before, but um, some of you may have missed it. Did anyone have a life verse back in your college days, any folks my age? A life verse that for some reason it was a popular thing to uh, come up with a verse that sort of captured uh, what you felt like the Lord wanted your life to be about. My life verse when I was at Bryan College was Psalm 27, 8 which says, uh, when you said, speaking to the Lord, when you said, seek my face, my heart said, O Lord, your face I shall seek. Uh, I understood that the Lord was telling me that the purpose in my life was to seek him, to pursue him, to know him so personally that it would be described as being face-to-face with him, that I would seek his face. My face uh, would be turned toward him, and his face turned toward me in a real relationship. That's what that verse captured for me, that I wanted so much, and I sensed that he wanted for me. Well, the Psalms are full of verses that urge us to pursue the personal presence of God. And another one of my favorites is Psalm 105, 4, which says, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Seek his presence continually. And actually, interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for presence there is face. So this idea of seeking God's face is to to be in his presence up close and personal. God gave us the Psalms uh, to help shape us into people who would prize and pursue the presence of God. And we've talked a lot about it, even in these songs of ascent, the presence of God. And Psalm 132 is, again, one of those psalms that will commend to us the pursuit of the personal presence of God. So would you stand with me as I read for us? I'll read it this time, and, and you listen and read along. Psalm 132, a song of ascents. And you have to imagine that the pilgrims are getting close to Jerusalem. We're we're at the end of this 14-song playlist of the Song of Ascents, and they're getting, I imagine that Jerusalem is in sight. So imagine that, and you'll understand why they're thinking about the temple. Okay? Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. Out of uh, one of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne." If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever, here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions, I will satisfy her poor with bread, her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now that's a lot, isn't it? (laughs) That is a lot, and it's not just a lot of words. It's it's a lot to understand. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of this psalm. And I'll just tell you right now, I'm not going to be able to tell you everything that every phrase in the psalm means, but (coughs) if we zoom back out a little bit, I think we can capture enough of the essence of it to help you and to help me as we are supposed to be using these psalms to help us Know what to pray for. Know how to talk to God about the things that he thinks are important. So, let's just split the psalm into two pieces, okay? The first half, verses 1 through 10. The second half, uh, 11 through 18. The first half of Psalm 132 is this. It's about the desire of God's people to know God's presence, okay? Just hang on to that. The first half... The desire of God's people to know God's presence. The second half of Psalm 132 is about God's desire for his people to know his presence. God's desire for his people to know his presence. So, the desire of God's people to know his presence and God's desire for them to know his presence. That's Psalm 132. Well, let's look at them in a little more detail. First, uh, the first 10 verses are about the desire of God's people to know God's presence. And you can see that in King David's desire for that special presence of God to rest in Jerusalem. Now, David didn't write this psalm, but probably one of the kings, one of the Davidic kings in his line wrote it, or someone who is writing on their behalf. They're writing on the behalf of the people. And the people are singing this and praying this as they travel to Jerusalem. And they're remembering David's desire for the special presence of God to rest in Jerusalem, their capital city. Remember, uh, the Bible teaches that God's presence is everywhere. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? I can't go anywhere to get away from God. He's everywhere. But there is a sense in which There's a special presence of God in certain places throughout Scripture. At altars, the tabernacle, the temple. Uh, These are places where uh, even the the burning bush that Moses came across. These are places where God has a special manifestation of his presence to either judge or bless people. So we're talking here about the special presence of God that David wanted to to see resting in Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people. And so in those first few verses, it talks about how David endured hardship and how he vowed to make sure that God had a dwelling place in Jerusalem. And you remember, if you go back and read 2 Samuel 7, you'll you'll see David's desire. He said, Lord, I have a palace. I have a place. I want to build you a place. And, uh, and so this psalm is reflecting on David's intense desire to see God's presence dwell amongst his people. His intense desire for, for his people, David's people, to experience the special presence of God, to know him personally, to be in relationship with him. That's what those first five verses are about. But then the question comes, where did David and his people find this special presence of God. Where where would it be? And that's verses 6 through 8. I want to read those again. It says, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. So we should be asking at this point, what it are we talking about? What's the it that they heard about when they were in Ephrathah and they found in the fields of Jaar? And they said... Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. There it is. The ark, this ark of the, co- ark of the covenant, um, which rested in first the tabernacle and later the temple that David's son Solomon would build. So... The special presence of God can be found in the place where God has chosen to dwell with his people as he promised, the temple. But in this case, specifically, this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, if you've been in church for, for long, you've, you've heard this Ark of the Covenant thing come up. This is not the Noah's Ark. It's a whole different thing. An ark was a container. So there's Noah's giant, great big ark. But the Ark of the Covenant was a box that was probably about the size of this table. It was about as long and deep and wide as this table, roughly. It was made out of acacia wood, which was a very valuable wood. And it was laid over with gold inside and out. God gave Moses the instructions on how to build this Ark. And inside the Ark, God asked to be placed three things. Uh, the copy of the Ten Commandments on two tablets, on uh, two pieces of stone that God had written with his own finger, so to speak. Uh, the Ten Commandments were placed in the ark. And then Aaron's rod that budded was placed in the ark. Now, I don't know if you remember that story, but it's fascinating. The people were arguing, arguing over who was going to be uh, the representative priest for God's people. And uh, the, so God told Moses, have uh, the head of every tribe lay down their staff, their walking stick in front of uh, the altar. And overnight, God would show, reveal which head and which tribe would be the tribe, the priest, the priestly tribe. Well, they came back the next morning and Aaron's rod had sprouted had budded and even produced almonds so here was this dead piece of wood that came to life and god used that symbol to say this is the man that i choose to bring you life he will be the one who represents god's people and brings them life um, and also in the covenant, in the Ark of the Covenant, was a golden jar of manna, that uh, bread-like, flaky stuff that God used to provide for His people in the wilderness. And then David calls the Ark of the Covenant God's footstool. It was, it was His place of reigning and ruling. So why, why, how do those things? connect with the special presence, the personal presence of God. What do they mean? Well, they're symbolic. The Ten Commandments are symbolic of God's covenant relationship with his people, that he rescued them from Egypt and now wants to be in relationship with, him, uh, with them. And so he gives them the Ten Commandments to say, this is how you're going to be in relationship with me and with one another. The rod of Aaron, as I said, was... Uh, was a symbol that God said, "This is how this is the man through whom I will give you life. This is the man through whom the priest, through whom you will be able to have relationship with me. The gold, golden jar of manna, God will provide for the people He's chosen to be his, even in the wilderness. and in his footstool, he will be their true king. He will be the one. Uh, who rules over them. They will have a personal relationship with the king of the universe, not just any king. So this ark became a symbol of God's presence among his people. Uh, Later they would put it in the temple and the glory of God, the, the cloud of glory would come and rest on the ark in the temple so that people could see this is where God has chosen to dwell. So that's how David's people, God's people in those days, could find the special presence of God. How did they get to that special presence? I mean, after all, he's a holy God and they're sinful people. If you were to go into the presence of that glory, of that fiery cloud of glory, you would die. Well, God provided a way for them to get to his presence and to to know his personal presence, and that was through the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The lid is what they called the mercy seat. And, of course, also it was made of wood and covered in gold, and on top of it were two angels whose wings touched cherubim, and that lid was the throne of God. It was called the mercy seat because on it, once a year, the high priest would take the blood of a sacrifice, uh, for, uh, on behalf of God's people and sprinkle it, pour it on the mercy seat for for the forgiveness of their sins, the forgiveness of their breaking those Ten Commandments that were in there, um, for the assurance that they could have the relationship uh, with God that those things, those objects in the box represented. So, That's where the special presence of God was. That's how people could get to it, even as sinners. God provided a way for sinful people to be face-to-face with the Holy God. My question for us this morning, a couple of questions, that this part of the psalm should make us ask is, do you desire the personal presence of God? David's desire in this, uh, this psalm is dripping with David's desire for the personal presence of God. And I'm convicted when I read it. Do I desire the personal presence of God that much? Do I know where to find it? Do I know how to get to it? If you're... You struggle with those questions because your desire for God's presence is like my desire to work out. Which you can tell is not strong. But I've been going to the gym, to the smack over here, wherever it is. Signal Mountain Mountain Athletic Club. Christine and Anna have been torturing me there lately. Um, But there's a sign in that gym that says this, and I love it because it resonates with me. The sign says, I wish I could drop my body off at the gym and pick it up when it's ready. Now, that's what I'm talking about. I would pay all kinds of money for that, right? Um, It's it's saying, listen, I'm not good at this. I don't have the time or strength for this. I wish somebody else could do this in my place, right? Right? And the people who sang and prayed this psalm, I believe, felt the same way. How, how, would we, how would we gather that? They knew that their own passion to pursue the presence of God would fail and falter. So the people sang and prayed that the Lord would remember David's desire for the presence of God. That's verse 1. And they asked God in verse 10 to give his presence and that same David desire to the current king. They know the way God designed it is like this. One of God's ways of working was to have one who represents the many. In other words, as goes the king, so goes the people. They needed help. They needed someone to do this in their place. They need a king who would be their substitute seeker of God's presence. And they knew if our king doesn't have the kind of David desire for the presence of God, if he doesn't have that desire, we're, we're toast. We're done for. We need him to do it. And that's why they sing and pray the second half of this psalm to remind themselves And in a sense, to remind God, as you can tell the way they're talking to him, to remind themselves of God's desire for his people to know his presence. Look again at verses 13 to 16. This This is God talking. For the Lord has chosen Zion, that's the city of God. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. So nobody gets in the way of what God desires. And if he desires it, he's going to make it happen. And they know this. He says, uh, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. God is saying, I'm going to do this. If your desire for my presence falters, my desire for you to have my presence will never, ever falter. And I'm going to do this. And he commits himself to make it happen, but the question is how. And this is how. He would provide a king from David's own line who has David's desire for the presence of God. So if you need a king... Who has David's desire for the presence of God? God says, I'm going to give you one. And where do I see that? In verses 11 to 13. The Lord swore to David. And this is going back to what happened in 2 Samuel 7. You can read it later. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he, the Lord, will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne if... Your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. So God's going to choose a king from David's own line who would have David's desire for the presence of God. Verses 17 and 18, he says it again. There in Zion, I will make a horn to sprout up for David, a horn. Is a symbol of strength. If you were a, a sheep herder and you had rams, the more horns you had, the more strength you had, the more wealth you had. I will make a horn to sprout up for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, for my king. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So God is promising, I'm going to do this for you because my desire For you to have my presence is greater than your desire to have it. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you a king who has that kind of heart. But there seemed to be a problem with this plan. Look at verse 12. God told David, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. But they didn't keep his covenant. David, the sons of David, the kings in David's line didn't keep God's testimonies. And so God's people lost a king whose desire was to know God's presence and make it known to his people. They didn't have it. A friend of mine described what happened to the kings of Judah this way. He said, from Solomon to Zedekiah, there's a steady decline in the line of David in the kings of Judah. And he said, think about a flashlight whose batteries are going out uh, over a 400-year period. Uh, occasionally, you can whack the bottom of the flashlight, and the brightness picks up, and it shines brighter than before, but nothing like it at the start. Ever done that? You just keep whacking that thing, and it brightens up for a little bit, and then it goes back down. But it never gets as bright as it was at the beginning and eventually it fades out. That's what happened to the line of the kings of Judah, the kings in David's line. There were some kings after David who were devoted to the Lord, but on the whole, there's a decreasing light and an increasing rebellion among the kings and the people. So it didn't, it didn't work. There wasn't a king who had David's desire for the presence of God. And if God doesn't do this, if he doesn't provide us a king who, who desires for us to know the presence of God, who will provide a way for us to go to the presence of God? How will we ever know him? This is the dilemma that God's people had, even as they would sing and pray this psalm on their journey to Jerusalem. There's something missing for them. In verse 17, here's the promise. There in Zion, I will make a horn sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. The word anointed is the Hebrew word Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. I have prepared a lamp for my Messiah, my Christ. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. God... (laughs) God's not done. (laughs) The flashlight may be dead, but God has another plan. There would be a king, the anointed Messiah, who would endure far greater hardships than David could even imagine. They bragged about how David endured hardships to get the ark, the presence of God, to Jerusalem. But there is coming a Messiah, a king, who would endure far greater hardships than David could even imagine. He would be tempted by Satan himself, betrayed, beaten, mocked, stripped naked, whipped till his back was plowed like a field, mocking crown of thorns shoved onto his head. His flayed body would be nailed to a Roman cross. He would be, even more than the physical pain, crushed by the weight of God's wrath for every sin of every one of his people, buried in a tomb and raised to life on the third day, so that his people would desire the personal presence of God, would know where to find it and how to get it. His name is Jesus, the Christ, the anointed king that God has promised to his people. Friends, you see, where do you find the presence of God? You find it in Jesus because Jesus is the true temple. He's where you find the presence of God. Jesus is the true Ark of the Covenant. Jesus obeyed the Ten Commandments that we broke that are in that ark. And just as Aaron's rod coming to life from the dead proved that he was God's chosen priest, so the resurrection proved that Jesus is God's chosen high priest for us, the only mediator between man and God, between us and God. And Jesus is the manna from heaven. He's the bread of life who sustains us until we get home. The cross is his mercy seat where, as our forever high priest, Jesus poured out his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins, where he now makes his enemies, Satan, sin, and death, his footstool. Jesus is the answer to that promise. He is that king that we need to have that desire for the presence of God, so much so that he would give himself, so that we could know it, so that we could experience the personal face-to-face presence of God. And so where do we find the personal presence of God today? Where do we go to seek God's face as he's told us to? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God, that same glory that rested on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, is in the face of Jesus Christ. And we say, okay, that's great, but I can't see the face of Jesus. Paul says, again in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, that um, the enemy is trying to veil us from seeing Jesus. He's trying to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, the good news about Jesus that we hear every week, that we read whenever we read his story, that is how we see the face of Jesus. Paul said it this way to the Galatians who had never seen Jesus, were not there when he was crucified on the cross. Paul said, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. and They had to think, I wasn't there. I didn't see his face. I didn't see him hanging on the cross. What Paul is saying is, when I preach to you the good news about Jesus, And what he's done for you, you saw him. You saw him in the preaching. That's how we see him. We see him in the the gospel, in the good news. Where else is the presence of God today? He's also, the presence of God is also in those who have the spirit of Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples right before he left, He said, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. You know him, the Spirit of truth, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus was promising that I will go, but I will send myself in my spirit to live in you and to be with you. So that the presence of God lives in us. Jesus prayed later that night in the garden. And he said to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That glory that rested on the temple is now, and rested on Jesus the temple, is now going to rest on us, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, he says, and you in me. Jesus, the temple, lives in us by his Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, after he had ascended into heaven, you know the story. They're in the house praying. The sound of a rushing wind comes through the house, and then they look, and it looks like there's what they call tongues of fire resting on each believer's head. That's the Shekinah glory. Temple, 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 temple. And that's why Paul is able to say, do you not know that you, collectively, plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then he says later, or do you not know that your body, individual, Christian, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have for God? So, how do we find the presence of God? We find the presence of God in Jesus, We find the presence of God in each other. (laughs) Um, And so what does that look like practically? Just a couple of things. You find the presence of God in Jesus, so put your face in front of his face. Literally, get in his face. He invites you to. And see his smile. You... Paul said, you see his face in the the glory of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel. You see his face uh, as he's presented here, as his death for you is proclaimed every time we have that meal together. Put your face in front of his face. See his face in the good news about all he's done to make the presence of God open to you. And then put your heart in front of his heart. Talk to him. Pray. That's what this psalm is all about. I'll give you, I'll end with a way to do that. And then put your face and heart in front of his face and heart in his people. That's fellowship. If you're looking for the presence of Jesus, get together with your brothers and sisters in Christ and talk about him and pray to him together, be with him together get around his word together, remind each other of the cross together, of the resurrection together. Um, that's where he is. And so when you hear us urging you, encouraging you, uh, pleading with you, get, get involved in some, one of these groups, a Bible study, men's, women's, a fellowship group. It's so that you can be near the presence of God in his word, in his people as I said at the beginning, the Psalms were written to help us pray, to help us talk to God about what he thinks is important. And so, as I finish here, how do, how do we pray about pursuing the presence of God using Psalm 132? I know Psalm 132 is really strange and complicated because it's not the way we see things, but I hope that I've helped you see uh, Jesus in it Just two things. The first half, when you reread, when you go back someday and you look at the first half of this psalm, let it prompt you to talk to the Lord about your desire or lack thereof to seek his presence. And you just say, Lord, I read read about David's desire and these people's desire to have your personal presence in the middle of their life. And I have to confess to you, Father, I don't have it all the time. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Or maybe when you're praying that day, you do, and you just say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to, I want to see you. I want, as I've prayed sometimes, Jesus, would you just show up and sit on the couch with me? But whatever it is, however that impacts your desire to know and experience the presence of God, tell him, pour out your heart to him. Use the song to talk to the Lord about your desire to seek his presence. And then the second half of the psalm, talk to the Lord about his desire to let you have his presence through Jesus. Praise him for it. Thank him for it. Rehearse and preach the gospel to yourself again. Jesus, it's, it's through you. I get the presence of God in you. I can't believe this. Help me to see you. Help me to pursue you. Help me to know that you're present with me right now. That I don't have to go somewhere to get your presence. Your presence is with me. I go here, I come here, and I go be with your people, and I go to your word because they remind me that I have your presence through you, Jesus. So use this psalm to help you pray about your desire to pursue this, the presence of God and about his desire that even when yours is not there he is committed he is more committed to you knowing his presence than you ever can be and his commitment is right there in jesus father thank you that was a lot i know and uh it was hard for me to to wrestle through that psalm this week um but would you use it to help us to help your people stir our desire to be with you. Um, Would it be possible, Father, is there any way that you could make our desire to be in your presence as strong as your desire to let us be there? I don't know. And we know one day when we feast in the house of Zion, we, we will know what our hearts long for we will know what it's like to sit down with you at your table. And this table now is a taste of that day to come. Would you make it sweet for us this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.